Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for one in a series of podcasts that document three days of workshops on the study of the Enneagram, with panels exploring the different personality types, led by Beatrice Chestnut and hosted by Michael Lerner. This episode is a short harvesting of insight and reflections from day two of the Enneagram panel workshop series covering types two, three, and four. So Beatrice Chestnut, thank you again for this wonderful second day that we're just completing. And um, I invited uh, Patrick Carews, am I saying it correctly? Correct. Yes. From Australia, who was on uh, the four panel just now and is also the current president of the International Enneagram Association, uh, which Beatrice was president of before I asked Patrick to join us. So, uh, Patrick, um, since you, have you spent a good deal of time in the United States as well as Australia? Yeah, I've spent quite a bit of time here you have. over the last six years. So, if you were to compare how Enneagram is experienced, received, and so forth in Australia and in the United States, what are the, what are the differences? I think we're, I think Australia is a sixth culture. Okay. As compared to America, three. three. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think, so that's really a big thing around how I think Australia has embraced or not embraced the Enneagram. How so? Um, Brings up a lot of stuff for me, but Mm. I I think we're much more um, wary of the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. So that led me on a path to write a book which doesn't use the Enneagram symbol, but is based on the Enneagram. What's your book called? Uh, it's called The Wid Factor, W-I-D, Why I Do What I Do. I see. And it's a accessible form of Enneagram. I see. So I'm unashamedly saying it's from the Enneagram, but it doesn't have a symbol. And I think for corporates and that in Australia, they're starting to take it on much more because when they see that symbol... Mm-hmm. A lot of them say, so is it cultic? Is it, what is this, some kind of worship? Or And dealing with some corporates, they were saying to me, I think Enneagram's too negative. So for me, when I produced what I produced, it um, is just giving us a more accessible form of Enneagram. Yeah, I, I, I believe it. in it deeply. And, but, and, of course, Beatrice has written a, a, a very accessible book on Enneagram for uh, leadership. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, since you've both been president of the International Association, I understand the coming uh, conferences in Oakland in August? In July. In July. Yeah, I think what it's... What are the dates? Oh, you're putting me uh, on the spot here. Uh, I think it's the 26th to the 28th. Okay. It's the Thursday. So how many people tend to show up for an international conference? Look, we get 400 on average, 400, but okay. seeing we're in the Bay Area this year, yeah. we're hoping that we might get six to 700 people. I get it. Yeah. I get it. And um, I want to come ask you, Beatrice, because you've travelled a lot teaching Enneagram. If, uh, where are the kind of hot spots of interest in Enneagram globally? How would you describe the hot spots? Globally. Um, hot spots. I think there's a lot of Enneagram happening in like Scandinavia, like in Denmark and Norway and Finland and Sweden mm-hmm. to some extent. Mm-hmm. Less so for the last three, but a lot in Denmark. 
Um, there's a some in Italy. There's a huge. There's a really enthusiastic new community in Egypt. Uh, there's a lot happening in China. There's some happening in South Africa, a good amount in South Africa. And where else? Am I missing anything big? No, I think China and... China, South, oh, America, South America, yeah. Brazil. Brazil. Is, Brazil. Yeah. And do you think that it has to do more with a cultural attunement in these countries? Or does it have to do with inspired teachers and happenstance? In other words, is it, to what degree is it uh, that there's some cultural attunement? And to what degree is it inspired teachers? And I think uh, a cultural attunement has a lot to do with it, mm -hmm. you know, because I think there have been a lot of good teachers in Australia, but Absolutely. there is something in the culture that's more suspicious. Um, I think that, um, like, for instance, in Brazil, it, there's a lot more acceptance of different kinds of spiritual things. Mm -hmm. um, they have a spiritual center on every corner in every city, and it's like even psychic phenomena. So it's it's very open to different spiritualism is is big there. So I think usually there's something in the culture. Um, I think in the U.S. it's being accepted, I think, more in Silicon Valley where there's sort of an innovative spirit and people are really focusing on collaboration and how you need to know each other better. And so making yourself a little more vulnerable even at work might be a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's a lot to a large degree. Mm -hmm. it's, it's that. And then it, there may be something also about happenstance, about a way that it comes in or mm -hmm. uh, a few – like in Denmark, I think there was – a few people who brought a lot of Enneagram teachers there at one point, and so it really got in there. Now in Egypt, it's kind of exploding. I was just there with my teaching partner, and they've had three or four other Enneagram teachers there right around now. So I think it's it's almost like it gets a, a certain momentum uh, built up. It could be also that in some countries, I'm thinking of Egypt and China, where you have authoritarian regimes, that this is a safe way for people to get together and, uh, I mean, China is notorious for its suspicion of religious, spiritual, and NGO activities. Yes. So the fact that this is big in China, it's a way for people to talk in a way that the government apparently is not afraid of. Well, well that's it's, changed. It, it's, well, yeah. But it's also going in through coaching in <laughs> China. Coaching oh, and universities, actually, is how it's kind of gotten bigger. I get it. Well, and, yeah, at the moment, China's put... The government's put something very strong clamps in mainland China. Right. So they were going to have the IEA um, China conference. That's right. In China, but they've had to move it now to Hong Kong. I see. To the university mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. So there's a real clamp down on anything spiritual. So it can be. Uh, so it's moved out of mainland China. I yeah. see. And yeah. in Egypt, um, is the is the again an authoritarian country? Is the um, is the version of Enneagram being taught in Egypt a spiritual or a secular version? Um, in, in Egypt, there's both. Mm -hmm. There are some people that are going in through business. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, for instance, we just taught uh, a week of trainings that were very spiritual. I see. Um, and because the religion is so strong there, mm -hmm. uh, I think it can happen that way more. Mm -hmm. Uh, in Egypt versus China, where it's not really going through spiritual spiritual way, is probably not the way it's going to grow. Uh, that it's more pr practical version in China, but in mm -hmm. Egypt, it's uh, and again, there are different teachers in Egypt that are emphasizing different things, and 
Um, the school we are affiliating with is called the School of Awakening, mm. or the Field of Awakening, and they teach a mixture of NLP and Reiki, mm. and, uh, and NLP being neuro linguistic neuro linguistic programming, programming and Reiki, Reiki and uh, also meditation and mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, Beatrice, um, I wanted to ask you. Um, and we've covered some of this in previous conversations, but it, it seems germane here. Um, if you were to name the three or four individuals who've been the greatest uh, influences on your uh, teaching, the, the, the lineages that you identify with most, who would those people be? Um, I would say um, certainly Claudio Naranjo. Yeah. Um, uh, especially as an academic influence or mm -hmm. as someone who I just think is really the seminal author who really brought in the theory, uh, both in terms of the types in the beginning uh, that and everyone else's version of the types are really based on his, mm -hmm. and also the subtype uh, mm -hmm. version that, that, that I uh, write about and talk about came from him. And I think he uh, presented a more refined version, a more nuanced and detailed version of the subtypes than it had existed uh, before what he did. Um, so certainly him, and I've studied with him a bit, not, you know, not all, not, not as much as other people. Um, and Helen Palmer and David Daniels have been big influences. You know, they started one of the first schools uh, a lot of the things about the way they taught it and their deep insight into the system have been a big influence. They were my first teachers, certainly very, very important to me. Um, and if I had to choose someone else, I mean, I think the the written work, I mean, someone whose books that I like a lot are Sandra Matry. Mm -hmm. um, I think she just, she was also there from the beginning, uh, knowing Claudio Naranjo in Berkeley. And I just think she captures the spiritual dimension in in the written word uh, in one of the best ways that I've read about. And certainly she's affiliated with Almas, but I think more accessible than Almas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so... Just now, sitting with the experience of having had two days, all of us in this room, of, or many of us have been here for uh, the 891 panels and now the 234. Um, and so we have uh, 567 uh, coming up. And my own experience is that as a body of us holding this together, there's a deepening taking place in the room, that um, there's a way in which, you know, we're holding this as an energetic body, and that, um, and it feels very special to me and very significant. Um, I think that, Almas has this beautiful book on Enneagram called The Enneagram of Holy Ideas. And um, I love the idea of the points on the Enneagram as nine faces of God. Mm. Um, that's the way I really relate to it. And I think part of the teaching which you share is that our natal point is critical early on, but as we evolve and develop, 
the other points can become as important, if not even more important. Is that a fair statement to us? I think a few of the other points can help serve as balancing points mm. or integration points, definitely. I mean, I think we do go from our passion to our virtue. So yeah. I think there is a way that our higher sides also reflect the type that we are. Yeah. Our passion to our virtue and our fixation to our holy idea. Is that right? Right. So I find myself at age 75... Um, a long way from either my virtue or my holy idea. <laughs> and um, and um, I'm fascinated because I've been working on myself in various ways for 40 years uh, that that's the case. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I, I'm particularly interested in the fixation to the holy idea I guess that's probably because I'm a five, right? Right, that's the and mental so, part, yes. <laughs> right. So the passion to virtue part, I guess, seems almost hopeless to me. <laughs> <laughs> and the fixation to all the idea doesn't seem a lot easier either. Um, but what about this? Well, let me ask each of you. Uh, you, you guys actually teach this stuff. So if you were to describe, Beatrice, how you are in your journey from passion to virtue and from fixation to holy idea, how would you describe where you are? Well, first of all, I'll say I think you're very humble and I think you might be closer than you think. <laughs> um, I'm the expert. I know it from inside. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's true. I won't argue with you. <laughs> Um, I would say for me, it's a constant practice. You know, it feels lifelong. It feels like a forward and backward. Mm -hmm. It feels like sometimes I feel, um, I feel like I'm having a bigger taste of humility than I've had before. Mm -hmm. And it's also sometimes I'm right there back in pride again. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's having a lot of compassion for yourself. Um, but I definitely... I definitely think that humility, holy will, holy freedom for me are goals that are very much with me. Um, what evoked the tears? I think just um, the, the idea of being in humility mm -hmm. is just... Um, it's a beautiful place. To me, humility is the only place to be. Yeah. I mean, you know... Um, there's a quote from Emerson that I use as my email uh, sign-off, which says something like, you know, uh, humility is the only wisdom. It's endless. Yeah. And to me, anybody who doesn't understand humility truly doesn't understand, you know, at the right. most basic level. Uh, right. Who it's, we are. it's the first uh, terrace in purgatory yeah. <laughs> in, Dante's, uh, yeah. in Dante's scheme. And I think it's... It's the main thing to focus on when we're trying to get out of the ego. Yeah. Um, because I think that it's just, you know, when we're in our egos, we're not in humility. And I think humility allows us to see beyond mm -hmm. our, our narrow confines of our ego. And so I just try to remember to be in touch with what feels vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And I've just been noticing again and again, if I can really work within myself, 
to get in touch with, like, what's the most vulnerable thing happening for me right now? The thing that I really would be embarrassed to share. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And if I can get in touch with that and share that, Mm -hmm. everything shifts, Mm -hmm. you know, because I know I'm not in pride if I'm, if there's something that feels vulnerable, feels hard to share, feels like I don't want anyone to see it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's the path for me, especially um, as a two, because pride is so slippery. Yeah. It's very tricky. It's yeah. easy to be in pride when you just think you're feeling good about yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also have fear of pride, and so that's mm-hmm. a problem too. Um, but I think if I am just trying to be with what's true and what's real, and especially if it feels vulnerable or like it's not exactly the most attractive thing, mm-hmm. then I know I'm on the right track. And if I can share that, then usually... Mm-hmm. Um, that has a big effect. Patrick, what would you say? How, where are you on your path? Mm. Um, I find that a difficult question, but I think naively, when I was a young man at 17 and decided to join a seminary, I think that links with that longing, which I really didn't talk about, but my longing really is that longing for union. Mm. I share that. Um, that I think we probably all share that. Yeah, and it's it's the longing for union that brings us mm, together. And I'm clunky. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I get it right every time. Mm -hmm. But um, I think I just have to be present to what life presents to me mm-hmm. um, and be vulnerable enough to share that, knowing that I'm good enough because that's that pulls me away from being compassionate to myself mm-hmm. and then showing that compassion to others. And days like today, for me anyhow, give me a a renewed sense of compassion for myself but also for others. What was it today that gave you that renewed sense? Well, when you hear, you know, we did the heart types today, but when you hear we we all are in struggle in some way. Yes, there's joys. Yes, there's, you know, life's not all bad. But for me, anyhow, at times there's that sense of judgment. Mm-hmm. And if that judgment is often a judgment of myself, mm-hmm. so if I can be more compassionate for myself, another word for humility, I think. Mm-hmm. If I can be more compassionate for me, I can then mm-hmm. be more with you. Because yeah. if I'm being completely judgmental on me, how can I actually drop into you yeah. and actually be present with you? Mm-hmm. So where I am on the journey is um, I'm not sure. But I do know that I have a great sense of knowing that there is something bigger than me that I'm connected to. Mm -hmm. And that sense that I feel of connectedness among us all is what continues to drive me in the work that I do. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Do you notice what happens in the room when we go into the space of each of us 
speaking from vulnerability. And, um, and can we all recognize that there isn't a single person in this room who isn't in struggle right now? That every single person here is in struggle. And that each of us is so far from our virtue or our holy idea. Um, even if some of us have been teaching Enneagram for decades to other people and probably helped countless thousands of people, and yet um, Beatrice's struggle, Patrick's struggle, uh, I haven't taught Enneagram ever, but I assure you that my struggle <laughs> Uh, just goes on, right? It, it talk about shape shifts. It changes, you know, mm. focus. It changes shape. Uh, but I don't know if I ever thought that at age seventy-five I would have figured some stuff out. But it's it's just fascinating how the struggle goes on. Um, at the same time, my experience is that if we allow ourselves to acknowledge the struggle, we find that even at older ages, we're very alive, mm -hmm. you know? That struggle is where our aliveness is because it's our growing edge. And, you know, when I sit in meditation in the morning, I'm, I'm fascinated by what I'm struggling with. And I know, you know, that I've been struggling with these things for 40 years. But somehow my relationship to the struggle shifts over time, mm. right? Even though the struggle remains acute, it, there's, there are ways in which I know I've walked some way on this mm. endless path that we're all on. So, so I just want to thank you all for holding the space with us today. Um, thank Patrick as our guest, honored guest from Thanks Australia. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And just profound gratitude to Beatrice Chestnut for mm. the beautiful, beautiful sharing of the teachings of the Enneagram. We're, we're so grateful mm. that you. you're here. Thank you all, and Beatrice, thank you again. Thank you. You've been listening to a TNS episode with reflections from day two of the Enneagram panel workshop series covering types two, three, and four. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.